We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Raymer. Today, professional coder, auditor, and consultant Terry Fletcher has a warning for you if you work at home. We get the latest coding news from Lori Johnson. Healthcare attorney Karen George has a special report from AOIG in our Talk Law segment. Dr. John Zellamance, another entry in his journaling John M.D. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her Talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who really misses old-time drive-ins and car hops, mostly car hops, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thank you, Clark Anthony. That is so funny. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the 520th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Erica. <laughs> good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. You know, I was thinking about our lead story this morning by Terry Fletcher. She's going to be talking about healthcare workers who work from home. Now, you work from home, right? I do indeed. I work from a home office. Okay, so Terry Fletcher's expected report on what OSHA is finding. Imagine kids using their mom's computers with protected patient information. That doesn't sound very good, does it? It does not sound good, but it doesn't surprise me. I'll be interested to hear what she has to say. Yep, it's the pitfalls of homework in healthcare. You know, like many of us, I did a lot of homework when I was in school, but, you know, times have changed. And uh, speaking of changing times, what's on your radar screen today? Well, I thought I would look into our next public health emergency, monkeypox. Monkeypox. Well, looking forward to hearing your talkback segment. We have much news to report this morning. I'll begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And today I'd like to talk about home and community-based services, or for short, HCBS. As a result of the American Rescue Plan, states are planning to invest $25 billion to expand, enhance, and strengthen HCBS, the largest investment ever in HCBS. And I hope that this investment does not lead to a drain on the already suffering nursing home provider sector. Nursing homes across the country are closing for many reasons. But leading the list is an inability to provide staffing. Profit margins in the nursing home industry are extremely small, and the current labor market hiring and retaining staff is a huge problem. What does this have to do with HCBS? You need to understand that HCBS care is rendered mainly in the home. One of the major drivers to HCBS is a term that you may have heard before if you're involved in long-term care, and that term is diversion program. HCBS services are heavily driven by diverting patients from going into long-term care. States save money when patients are treated at home and do not end up in nursing homes. My question is whether or not states will increase the reimbursement rates they pay to nursing homes to help them retain and hire the staff that they need. Hopefully, as HCBS services expand, even on a net basis, states can still save money while increasing payments to nursing homes. I can understand states seeing the added dollars as a double win. They get money to provide HCBS services while the number of patients, days, and payments to nursing homes drop. Sadly, I'm not sure how many nursing homes can take a drop in both census and payments for Medicaid. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Tim Powell, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday, it's August the 23rd, and you're listening to the 520th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Even as the public health emergency continues and patient volumes are disrupted, the evaluation and management essentials will assist you in staying on top of rules and guidelines to ensure compliant charges and capturing full compliant payment evaluation and management services. 
This time-tested resource is ideal for coders, audit and compliance staff, physicians, clinic staff, and others. It's designed to clear up confusion and instill confidence in confronting the many changes. And here's a special offer. If you pre-order your 2023 E&M Essentials book before August 31st, you'll receive the digital book free. That's right. Pre-order your 2023 E&M Essentials book before August 31st and get the digital book free. The E&M Essentials book with this amazing offer is now available at the ICD University Bookstore. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson, and good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. Last week, we were able to complete a big activity by reviewing the Fiscal Year 23 Inpatient Prospective Payment System Final Rule. I hope that we were able to provide you valuable information for the coming year. Today, I want to prepare you for the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting, which is scheduled for September 13th and 14th. The meeting will begin with a review of the inpatient procedure codes. This meeting will start at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and continue to the lunch break, which is scheduled from 12.30 p.m. to 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and the afternoon session continues to 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. The procedure tentative agenda contains five topics plus the Section X updates and the addendum. The five topics are implantation of extraluminal support device during arteriovenous fistula creation, number two, implantation of ultrasound penetrable cranioplasty plate, uh, three is insertion of transcatheter bicable valve system, implantation of bioprosthetic femoral venous valve, which is number four, and number five is intubated prone positioning. There are two proposals that will not be presented but are still under consideration. Um, The implantation of the cranioplasty plate and the insertion of the transcatheter bicable valve system though they have requested um, new technology add-on payment for fiscal year 24. The diagnosis code proposals will follow the procedure proposals. There are 25 proposals on the tentative diagnosis, diagnosis agenda, plus the addenda. Some of the topics include the allergial syndrome, child and adult obesity, coronary microvascular disease, foreign body entering into or through a natural orifice, sickle cell retinopathy, short bowel syndrome and intestinal failure, and social determinants of health. I have placed a resource that identifies all of the URLs to download the tentative agendas, the Zoom meeting invitation, and the email addresses to submit comments. One of the best advantages of attending the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting is that you can receive free CEU credits from AHIMA and AAPC. And Erica, I know that you will be attending. You are so right, Lori. I can't wait. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Lori Johnson, thank you again. And folks, by the way, uh, you can download last week's presentation, our three-day 2023 IPS Coding Summit. It's now available at the bookstore, and you can download it there. 
Here's our special segment. It's called Journaling John MD, and here is the Journaling John MD, Dr. John Zellum. Good morning, Dr. Zellum. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Today's topic is silos in your workspace. One of my observations almost on a daily basis is that there are silos in every workspace, and we constantly hear the phrase that silos need to be broken down. I'll get to that in a minute. Where do silos come from? The reality is is that silos are everywhere and they are not necessarily totally bad, but we need to know where that mentality comes from. The silo concept gets implanted in our minds very early in life, which may be a surprise to most of us. It was to me. But remembering back to our childhood days, grammar school tended to be one teacher, multiple subjects, all in the same classroom. The silo process starts later in the upper grades with each subject having its own teacher with different styles, different rooms, different homework assignments, and a lot of times. In addition, most of the time each student had their own desk, their own locker, books, and equipment. This is just one area where it starts, but it was the beginning of compartmentalization, or more simply stated, silos. Each subject was independent of all the others. This concept is subliminally implanted in our minds. Why would we not carry it through to our work environment, ours being healthcare? According to Corey Mosley, there are three types of silos he discusses. One, organizational. This is division within the department according to different types of people and skill sets, often making them operationally autonomous entities focusing on specific goals leading to little interaction and information sharing. There may be a financial component to this silo when it comes to individual budgets. Number two, informational. This can be secondary to number one, where information remains trapped within that department. And number three, silos of the mind. These are ingrained thought patterns that influence everyday decision-making within teams. They're the result of departmental biases and information hoarding. These are all found in clinical revenue cycle in today's world. Let's get back to the statement already mentioned that silos need to be broken down. That probably is very true, but they can't be left that way. They need to be rebuilt, rebuilt with several thoughts in mind. Number one, knowledge sharing. Information cannot remain trapped in one department. Think about the disparate platforms utilized by a department that doesn't communicate with others cross-functionality. Every person should understand how other departments function, not necessarily in detail, but in overall knowledge. Three, cross-pollination. Ideas, actions from one department may benefit another. Standardization. Using this concept across an organization helps keep everyone on the same page. And lastly, accountability. From the CEO to leadership to managers to team members, everyone needs to be accountable for their actions. In conclusion, Have silos in your department or organization? Make sure that they work for your benefit and success. Try a holistic approach for rebuilding, and I will be talking about that next week. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, John. That was fascinating. That was Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum is the founder and CEO of Streamline Solutions Consulting, and he's the physician advisor for Cameron Memorial Community Hospital. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And again, Dr. John Zellum, thank you for an excellent report. Next, Law Talk with healthcare attorney Karen George. Talk Law is sponsored by Hitex, a clinical informatics organization dedicated to bringing the most advanced technology and people to assist healthcare professionals at the point of care. 
and provide proactive workflow assistance to clinical documentation integrity, computer-assisted physician documentation, and clinical decision support. Find them at hitex.com. Here now is healthcare attorney Karen George. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me. So the Office of Inspector General recently issued a special fraud alert to providers regarding arrangements with telemedicine companies. This alert follows months of civil and criminal investigations related to telemedicine companies using kickbacks to incentivize providers into ordering medical tests and billing services that are neither medically necessary nor clinically appropriate. The alert lists several types of suspicious activities that could signal fraudulent behavior. This includes situations where the provider does not have sufficient contact with the patient to assess the medical necessity of the services, or where the telemedicine company does not expect the provider to follow up with the patient, nor does it provide the practitioner with the necessary information to follow up, or circumstances where the telemedicine company specializes in a single service or medical product, potentially restricting the provider's treating options to a predetermined course of treatment. Other suspect activities include the telemedicine company aggressively recruiting patients by advertising free or low out-of-pocket cost services, the telemedicine company working exclusively with patients enrolled in federally funded health programs while rejecting those covered by private insurance, or the telemedicine company claims to only work with patients with private insurance, but in fact bills government-funded insurance. Finally, the OIG identifies circumstances where the provider is compensated based on the volume of the services rendered, which the telehealth company may characterize to the provider as being based on the number of medical records reviewed. For the time being, the recent string of DOG criminal and civil investigations under the Federal False Claims Act and the anti-kickback statute are likely to continue and expand in telehealth. It's important to note that the alert is directed to practitioners signaling the OIG's expectation that practitioners will act cautiously and not simply refer to requests by telemedicine companies. Providers who contract with telemedicine companies need to ensure that the services they are being engaged to perform are legitimate and are rendered in an appropriate manner. It is critical for practitioners and telemedicine companies to conduct an internal compliance review, identify risk areas, and promptly fix them. Practitioners and telemedicine companies should also consider implementing a healthcare fraud and abuse compliance program. This can serve as a mitigating factor if the practitioner or company become the target of an investigation, but ideally it should assist in preventing the practitioner or company from becoming a target in the first place. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Karen, very much. That was Karen George. Karen is a healthcare attorney at the Los Angeles law firm, a buckholder in Los Angeles. And a program note, you're listening to the 520th Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Attention coding professionals and all HIM professionals. Important coding information is now available on demand. It's the 2023 IPPS Coding Summit. Listen and learn during this exclusive three-part summit now available on demand. The summit features coding expert Lori Johnson with analysis by Dr. Eric Raymer. Learn about the 2023 changes associated with the IPS, including new ICD-10-CM and PCS codes, plus insights, analysis, and answers to questions. Download your on-demand version of all three sessions available now at the ICD-10 Monitor Bookstore. 
Thank you, Clark Anthony. By the way, I was very proud to be part of that team of Laurie Johnson and Dr. Eric Reamer last week. The content is excellent. It's the kind of information you're not going to find anywhere else except here at ICD-10 Monitor. So download all three sessions. They're now available at the ICD University Bookstore. Our lead story this morning is about the pitfalls of non-compliant homework when HIPAA and OSHA come knocking at your home. Here now with more on this developing story is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, listeners. So today my focus is on the telecommuters or our work-from-home healthcare employees. Medical professionals working remotely have heard all of the rules on HIPAA privacy and security from an IT perspective, meaning encryption, changing default passwords, firewalls, etc. But there are specific HIPAA guidelines from working at home that employers also need to be mindful of. Developing policies and procedures prohibiting employees from allowing friends and family from using devices that contain protected health information, like laptops, cell phones, etc., used to store this information. Have employees sign a confidentiality agreement before they begin work. Also, are you providing lockable file cabinets or safes for employees who store hard copy paper in their home offices? Provide HIPAA-compliant shredders for remote workers so these workers can destroy paper PHI at their work locations once it's no longer needed. Limiting and disallowing social media access on work computers. And also ensuring that employees disconnect from the company network when their work is complete. This can be done by applying measures such as IT configuring timeouts when there is no activity for five minutes. Furthermore, telecommuters are in an employer workspace now. So there are also OSHA considerations that have to be met to make sure you're compliant. If you work from home, this is an extension of your employer's office and has to be considered that way when it comes to OSHA protocols. The OSHA Act applies to work performed by an employee in any workspace within the United States, including a workspace located in the employee's home. All employers, including those which have entered into the work-at-home agreements with employees, are responsible for complying with the OSHA Act and safety and health standards. Even when the workplace is a designated area in the employee's home, the employer retains some degree of control over the conditions of the uh, work-at-home agreement. An important factor in the development of these arrangements is is to ensure that employees are not exposed to reasonable, foreseeable hazards created by their at-home employment. This is a good way also to determine if the employee has a dedicated workspace to use for working from home and not sitting at a dining room table with the kids, the spouse, and everyone else's paperwork also in the open to see. An employer is responsible for ensuring that its employees have a safe and healthful workplace, not a safe and healthful home. The employer is responsible only for preventing or correcting hazards to which employees may be exposed to in the course of their work. For example, if work is performed in the basement space of a residence and the stairs leading to the space are unsafe, the employer could be liable if the employer knows or reasonably should have known of this dangerous situation or if the work requires the use of office equipment, like computers, printers, scanners, fax machines, in an employee's home, it must be done in a manner not to overload the home electrical circuits, as this could be a fire and safety violation. There have been many reports lately, especially of OSHA spot checks, when there is a a complaint reported, and that could be your neighbor complaining. Any OSHA enforcement visits must, of course, be conducted in compliance with the Fourth Amendment, which would require OSHA to obtain either consent to inspect or a judicially issued warrant. But it has been reported that home inspections are becoming more commonplace. It is imperative that telecommuters and their employers are aware of the rules. And lastly, what about the Civil Rights Office of Civil Rights? OCR investigated uh, incidents of HIPAA breaches caused by telecommuting and determined that certain HIPAA entities 
failed to take a number of basic measures required under HIPAA security rule. OCR also discovered that these entities had no written policy regarding the removal of hardware containing PHI in and out of its facilities. The lack of a written policy constituted a clear violation of, of the HIPAA Security Act. One of the reported OCR breaches sounded like something right out of a bad soap opera. A manager from a specific HIPAA entity, employee and telecommuter, had left behind approximately 300 records in her car after deciding to leave her husband. Believe it or not, the manager was actually complying with an unwritten rule, which simply required that such records, as well as procedure manuals, be stowed away in telecommuting employee cars as a form of data backup. This is not a good idea, folks. The manager left behind her car and her husband. However, the husband continued to have access to the vehicle, and that husband later contacted the main company and the Office of Civil Rights to report he had discovered the private records. When the matter got to a hearing before an administrative law judge, the judge ruled in favor of the OCR, finding that as an organization, the care center had failed to implement effective HIPAA-compliant guidelines. Another was a school-aged child looking for a paper to do math problems and found the back of an operative report as a blank sheet, put this in her backpack, and turned it into the teacher with the math problems on the back. The teacher, however, turned it over and knew the patient on the front page of the op report. It was her brother-in-law and his cancer surgery that no one knew about. The fines were epic, not to mention the family rift from the security breach, and don't get me started on what happened to the actual center. Know the rules, HIPAA, OSHA, OCR. Telecommuters have to, be, have, to have a dedicated workspace to comply with all the rules and regulations. And with that, back to you, Erica. Terry, I'm sorry I laughed at your example. Like, what are the odds that it was going to be her, her like, relative who's, that's just, that's just wild. Do you have anything in specific that you do in your office that, uh, that you would recommend for other people? Because I know you, I you work out of home and you have access to PHI as well. Yes, I do, because I do remote auditing. So I make sure that I have something that once I'm not at the computer for three minutes, it automatically um, sends me off. And also everything that I have that's ever paper has a locked compartment for it. And so I'm noticing when I've done some spot checks just for people and clients, they don't have a dedicated workspace in their uh, house. And that makes me a little nervous. I agree. Um, I also use use one of those iron keys. Like if I have anything that's going to have PHI, I I only work on an iron key and nobody can get into it. And if if they try too often to figure it out, it just that's the end of that, which I hope hope never happens because I I really rely on it. But uh, I think that it's really important that you bring this to everyone's attention. Thank you, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional coder, auditor, and consultant. Chuck? Thank you, uh, Erica. And Terry Fletcher, thank you again. I'll be sure to read Terry's article. It's our lead story this morning in the ICD-10 Monitor News. Now it's time for a very popular segment here at Talk Ten Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, you are on. Thank you, Chuck. Well, I'm going to review monkeypox today. It is endemic in parts of Africa, but in May 2022, an outbreak started, and it's spreading pretty much exponentially. On August 4th, 2022, monkeypox was declared a public health emergency. We weren't even done with the last public health emergency. The illness has been found in 95 countries with over 40,000 cases globally. As usual, we, the United States, are number one. 
with more than a quarter of the cases over 15,000 as of yesterday, August 22, 2022. Monkeypox is one of the group of illnesses caused by a genus of viruses called orthopox viruses. These illnesses are zoonoses, which means they start in animals and spread to humans. Orthopox viruses include rabbitpox, camelpox, and cowpox. The variety of monkeypox, which seems to be spreading, is the less severe type, recently renamed clade 2, and fatalities are rare. Mortality is most common in severely immunocompromised individuals who do not receive antiviral therapy. The symptoms of monkeypox are typical prodromal viral symptoms such as fever and chills, headache, muscle aches, swollen lymph nodes, and potentially respiratory symptoms like sore throat and cough. A painful rash then develops that runs the whole gamut of rash appearance. Flat spots to raised bumps with depressed centers, to vesicles, to pustules, to scabbed lesions. Monkeypox are often larger than chickenpox lesions. The incubation period is 3 to 17 days, and the illness typically lasts 2 to 4 weeks. A patient is infectious from prodrome until scabs fall off and new intact skin grows. It spreads through close personal contact with lesions or secretions. Currently, it is being seen most frequently in men who have sex with men and can be contracted during intimate contact due to direct contact with the rash or infected um, body fluids. It is not, however, a sexually transmitted disease per se. It is not believed to be transmitted via respiratory um, secretions or aerosol, but the jury is not completely out on this, so healthcare workers are being advised to wear an N95 um, masks and eye protection when caring for patients with monkeypox. Patients who are at high risk of having severe disease include patients with immunocompromise, pediatric patients under 8 years old, pregnant women, and patients with complications such as secondary bacterial skin infections, dehydration, or concurrent disease. Those patients and patients with severe disease should be considered for treatment with antiviral medications. There are two vaccines being used against monkeypox. My son was very happy to get his first Genios vaccine last week, which is used for prevention of smallpox and monkeypox. This is a live, non-replicating vaccine, which means that it is only as effective um, as long as the viral units are alive since they can't propagate. A second dose is indicated at four weeks, but at the moment, the CDC and WHO are trying to sort out who should receive doses, how big the doses should be, and how they should be administered. If a patient has been exposed, they can receive post-exposure prophylaxis if they present expeditiously. The other vaccine, ACAM2000, has more side effects and contraindications than Genios. At this time, vaccination is indicated for people at higher risk for exposure, such as the patient populations noted, um, as I mentioned before, and healthcare workers and laboratory personnel who have or are likely to come into contact with specimens or patients with the disease. Quarantine is not recommended, but isolation if there is exposure and onset of symptoms. Needless to say, one's healthcare provider should be looped in if this occurs. I do not think this is going to be a pandemic of COVID-19 proportions. First of all, it is not novel. 
Second, the mode of trans- transmission is very different. We already have treatment and vaccines. Right now, it is primarily in a single patient population, although it is not likely to stay completely contained. It just underscores that diseases that are found elsewhere in the world can make their way here. We need to be aware and vigilant. The public um, health community needs to respond promptly and effectively, and we need to work with them. The CDC has announced that it's going to be making some changes, and I think that these are welcome. Chuck, back to you. Well, Erica, thank you very much for an excellent uh, topic. And folks, be sure to read uh, her article. We're going to publish it uh, later this week on this terrible, terrible situation uh, about monkeypox. And uh, that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Talk to Tuesday. And I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And I want to thank our panelists, Karen George, Lori Johnson, Timothy Powell, Dr. John Sellum, and Terry Fletcher, who reported our lead story this morning on the perils of working at home. And a special thanks to you for being my co-host, Dr. Eric Rimmer. And remember, you can listen to all of Tech and Tuesday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Tech and Tuesday and IC the 10 Monitor. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.